Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. Welcome to episode nine of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today's episode is my first solo episode where I share with you some of the research that I've completed over the past few months. This is the story of a post-war reckoning. The story of how one of the most inhumane monsters of the Third Reich became a valuable asset to U.S. Army intelligence after the end of the Second World War. In fact, how he became so valuable that even with his terrible crimes against humanity, which came to light years later, he was still protected by officers of the U.S. Army who helped him to escape justice for years to come. It's a complex story about the relationship between human intelligence sources and their handlers and how it often takes a bad guy to catch a bad guy and how sometimes you can slowly lose your own morals and values when you're faced with an implacable enemy. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click, and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, the producer of this podcast, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. So first I want to set the stage with the situation in Germany at the end of World War II. Months before the fighting actually ended, the Allied powers had already seen that Germany was on the verge of defeat, and so they held a conference at the city of Yalta on the Crimean Peninsula in February of 1945. At this conference, they agreed to divide up Germany into four zones once the fighting had concluded. Each one of these zones would be controlled by one of these four allied nations. This agreement was later on modified at a second conference at the city of Potsdam inside Germany in August 1945 after Germany had surrendered and after the allies had occupied the entire country. Well, the end result of these conferences was that the United Kingdom occupied the northwest zone of Germany. France has the western zone of Germany, the U.S. has the southwest zone of Germany, and the Soviet Union took over the eastern zone. German capital city of Berlin was way inside the Soviet zone in the east of Germany, and that city was further divided into four different sectors occupied by the four allies as well. Also, Austria and Vienna were divided up in similar fashion. So at this point, most of the rest of the world is kind of breathing a huge sigh of relief as hostilities ended here and in the Pacific by August of 1945. And everyone mostly just set back to work 
rebuilding their ruined cities, rebuilding their ruined lives as best as they were able. Most of the service members on all sides of this conflict eventually returned home and tried to get back to life. But for some of the members of the U.S. Army still in Germany, in post-war Germany, an entirely new mission was now just starting. This mission was the hunt for high-ranking Nazi Party members and unrepentant fighters who had gone into hiding rather than surrender along with the rest of the Third Reich. So the soldiers of the U.S. Army's Counterintelligence Corps, which was before the creation of the CIA in 1947, the largest intelligence organization within the U.S. government, these agents now had this task of finding all of these high-ranking Nazi members hiding out in Germany. During World War II, the Office of Strategic Services was a much more high-profile organization, and they had very famously conducted offensive intelligence operations like sabotage, guerrilla warfare, uh, the building of human intelligence networks to support the fight against the Axis powers. Well, the OSS was dissolved almost immediately after the end of hostilities. Most of those agents from the OSS went back to civilian life, or they joined the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence, or they joined the CIA once it was created. Uh, Whereas on the other hand, the Army's counterintelligence corps was more focused on defensive operations like uncovering enemy spy networks in occupied areas and screening prisoners of war, among other things. But now they had this new mission where they went to work on a long-term mission of rooting out all of the bad actors still hiding out among the civilian population in Germany. The special agents of the 970th CIC detachment ended up opening 12 different regional field offices spread throughout this U.S.-controlled portion of Germany in southern Germany. Their mission was to locate and arrest these diehard holdouts to uncover plots to continue guerrilla warfare in the occupied zones and to find and remove caches of weapons and explosives which were still hidden all over the country. They did a great job. They were highly effective in this mission and they arrested many, many people along the way and recovered tons and tons of weapons and ammunition and explosives without a great deal of violence after the fact. But then, just as the CIC and the rest of the occupying army is making great strides in completing this mission, the world changes again. The Western powers, that is France, Great Britain, and the U.S., all begin to realize that the Soviet Union is now their greatest adversary and that the Soviet Union was already occupying one quarter of Germany and had no intention of leaving. This meant that an entirely new threat had to be faced. This previous wartime alliance, which had been built around facing the common enemy of the Axis powers, that alliance was over with now, and it was back to the way things had been before. At the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, the Soviet Union had agreed to allow free elections in Poland, which they were occupying at the time. However, Joseph Stalin immediately broke this promise by crushing the opposition to his own candidates of choice to ensure that they would be elected. And the other three powers watching this happen in Poland, they recognized correctly that the same thing was going to happen in Eastern Germany, in the Soviet-occupied zone, which is exactly what happened. The Soviet zone became later known as the German Democratic Republic, also called East Germany, and was a satellite state of the USSR for the next few decades. Beyond that, the discovery of there were numerous highly effective Soviet spies within the Allied governments, 
which demonstrated that Stalin had always viewed them as adversaries and that there would be no more goodwill between the U.S. and Europe and the USSR. So stopping the spread of communist influence through the Western occupied zones in Germany became priority number one for the former wartime allies. This would require a major, major, major operational pivot, and it generated tremendous moral and ethical conflicts and questions that still to this day have not really been satisfactorily answered. In my mind, there's probably no single incident which better represents this confusing new world that these World War II veterans found themselves in than the handling of Klaus Barbie. Barbie was a Nazi war criminal who played a key role in this new world order that arose in the mid-1940s with its epicenter right there in occupied Germany. Barbie was a man that seemed to react with almost perfect understanding and perfect timing as this worldwide realignment of alliances and adversaries occurred. He had an ability to break anyone underneath him, as we'll see later on when he was a Gestapo member, and influence anyone above him, such as the U.S. Army CIC personnel that he was working for. This ability was just unparalleled. He could, he was like a chameleon. He could become anything he needed to be in any situation. And he became the key figure in a diplomatic crisis that spanned six nations over a period of nearly 40 years, from the 1940s through the 1980s. So how did all this happen? How did the CIC go from locating and arresting Nazis to hiding and protecting one of the worst of them of all? And what was it that made him one of the worst of all Nazi war criminals to begin with? So I'm going to go backwards a little bit right now to Barbie's actions during the war, long before he came to the attention of the CIC. Beginning in, in 1935, when Barbie was just 22 years old, he joined the Schutzstaffel, which was the paramilitary arm of the Nazi party at the time. They're more commonly known now as the SS. So he'd been with the SS for four years already before World War II actually began in 1939. Within the SS, he was assigned to the SD, which was the intelligence gathering wing of the SS. Once the war began, Barbie was first assigned to occupied Netherlands, where he participated in operations rounding up Jews and members of the Freemason organizations and sending them off to camps. He was promoted to the equivalent of a captain in the SD and later transferred to France. There, Barbie was put in charge of Gestapo activities in the region surrounding Lyon, France, from 1942 through 1944. The Gestapo were the secret police organization which were hunting down partisans in occupied zones during the war. So while Barbie is in Lyon, he participated directly, personally, in the interrogation and torture and execution of suspected members of the French resistance. He tortured people using electric shocks, using knives, using blowtorches. He held their heads underwater to simulate drowning. He did every kind of awful thing imaginable to these suspected partisans. Historians at this point now hold him responsible for at least 4,000 deaths in the region around Lyon in that two-year period. These were not military casualties. These were not from battles. These were civilians and partisans resistance members. Some estimates have gone as high as 14,000 in that region, all due to Barbie. However, the crime for which he is best known to this day took place in April of 1944. Barbie's men located an orphanage 
in the town of Ijou, which was caring for 44 Jewish orphans. Their parents had already been rounded up and sent to concentration camps earlier during the occupation of France, so now only the children were left behind. When Barbie learned of the surviving Jewish children at Ijou, he sent three trucks to the orphanage and rounded up all of the kids along with seven of their adult caretakers. He sent almost all of them to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. 42 of the 44 children, along with five of the seven adults, all died in the gas chamber at Auschwitz on Barbie's orders. Two of the teenage orphans and one of the adults were sent to Estonia to another camp near Tallinn, where they were shot to death. Only one adult and no children out of the entire orphanage actually survived the war. All the children perished simply because Barbie had learned of their existence. Obviously, they were not resistance members, but they were of the wrong ethnicity. And so Barbie took action and, and they disappeared. For this, he became known then and forever as the Butcher of Lyon. Barbie's methods were incredibly brutal, but also very effective in stamping out the remaining resistance around Lyon. He broke several of the high-ranking members of the resistance that were captured, and he turned them into collaborators who ended up working against their former comrades within the resistance. Later on, when the U.S. Army pushed into France after D-Day in 1944, Barbie and his remaining men were slowly pushed back into Germany. Uh, he was not killed or wounded or anything. He eventually went into hiding in Germany with his wife and children after hostilities ended and after the Third Reich surrendered. So after the surrender, the special agents from the 970th Counterintelligence Corps Detachment started hunting for Barbie and for the other SS officers throughout occupied Germany. At this point, it's, it's really important to remember, and I want to say this several times throughout this episode, that in the immediate aftermath of the war, Barbie's crimes were not known to anyone except the people in the region surrounding Lyon, the people who had survived his wrath in Lyon. A very, very few people in a small region were aware of what he had done, but the U.S. Army, the U.S. government, uh, even the French government, I don't think, were really aware of who he was or what he had done. Uh, however, he had been identified as a Gestapo officer from records which had been found, and that was enough for them to detain him on site once they actually located him, which was their mission. So Barbie was first arrested by CIC agents in the city of Marburg, in August of 1946, about a year after the war ended, where he was residing with his family. However, they picked him up and they detained him, and they were transporting him back to a detention facility in an open-top jeep, and he managed to jump out of the jeep and escape on foot when the arresting officers stopped to pursue him. So I'm not exactly sure how he lost them, but he was able to get away the first time that he was detained. So something that you'll realize about Barbie throughout this episode is that narrow escapes from justice were something of a trademark of his for the rest of his life. He'd already survived the war. He'd already escaped the CIC one time. And then it just continued on and on after that. In November of 1946, just a couple of months later, he's arrested by British forces this time because he's in the British zone. And one of their intelligence informants identified Barbie to the Brits. So the British Army detained him in a home that they were using as a sort of ad hoc detention facility, just a home that they had occupied. But Barbie escaped again after spending just two days there because he was able to slip out past a guard. This wasn't like a serious, 
you know, walled compound with barbed wire or anything. It was just a home with a few guards on it that they were using as a temporary facility, and he managed to escape again. So once again, he's on the loose somewhere between the British zone and the American zone. Now, a few months after that, the CIC initiates something that they call Operation Selection Board, which was a huge coordinated op for the planned capture and arrest of 57 different identified former SS officers who were still at large, which includes Barbie. His name was on the list. All of these officers targeted for Operation Selection Board had created their own shadow government within the American and British occupied zones. This is one of several different groups that sprang up after the German defeat, and it seems to have been one of the largest and the best organized. Barbie himself was already living and working under multiple aliases at this time in and around Marburg, and he was doing so to stay ahead of the British and American authorities. He was running his own human intelligence network, a clandestine network, and a logistics network around Marburg to support this Nazi shadow government organization, which they're just trying to get off the ground. So Operation Selection Board, it turns out to be a major, major success for the CIC. It results in a total of 70 arrests, even more than they had anticipated when they began planning the operation. But Barbie managed to stay one step ahead yet again. This operation lasted for several weeks, and he had his closest call yet in February of 1947 while he's attending a meeting in the home of one of his fellow conspirators. The CIC raids the home during the meeting, but Barbie just so happened to be in the bathroom at the back of the house when the CIC agents came through the front door for the raid. So he was able to jump out the bathroom window and escape from the back of the house. This is his third escape in, in a six-month period at this point. So the guy is just a, a master at this. He's an escape artist. By April of 1947, Barbie is still at large, probably somewhere in the American zone. This is almost two years after the end of fighting in Germany at this point. But the counterintelligence corps at this point is starting to pivot to face this growing threat of Soviet influence in Germany. At the time, the CIC has these 12 regional offices within the American zone, and each of them are operating kind of independently from each other. So they don't necessarily know what the other field offices are up to at all times. There's some compartmentalization there. Each of these offices is creating their own source networks among the population. They're trying to locate these war criminals, and they're also keeping tabs on their wartime allies, which includes the Brits and the French. Kind of goes without saying that, of course, they wanted to know what the Soviets were up to, but there is not an intelligence organization in the world that will turn down information on what their allies are doing as well. So when it comes their way, when they find out what the British are up to, when they find out what the French are up to, they collect that information as well because it's it's free, essentially. So there are CIC agents in the Region 1 office in Stuttgart and the Region 3 office in Marburg, which is where Barbie lives. And from these two offices, they're actively hunting for Barbie. But later on, a human intelligence source who is working for the Region 4 office, which is in Memmingen, he kind of unexpectedly reports that he met Barbie recently. And this source for the Region 4 office is named Kurt Merck. He's a former German counterintelligence officer, and he spoke to his American handlers very highly of Barbie for his capability, for his placement, his access to all of the other holdout SS officers that are still in hiding. 
Kurt Merck told them that Barbie seemed to know everybody who was still out there at large who had not been captured yet. So these agents from the Region 4 office, they decide rather than pursue Barbie, that they're going to invite him to a meeting, a non-confrontational meeting, to see if he might make a good source as well. And Merck goes back to Barbie. He pitches him on the meeting. Barbie agrees. So Barbie comes to meet with the CIC agents, and the meeting goes well. Barbie agrees to start working with the CIC and to stop working with all of his former SS comrades and start reporting on them to the CIC. At this point, the army agents, they know that Barbie is an unrepentant Nazi. They know that he was ideologically aligned with the Nazi goals, not just somebody who put on a uniform to serve his country, but they, the situation in Germany is just it's changed. Now, the Soviet threat is larger than the former Nazi holdout threat at this point. And let me tell you, nobody is more stridently opposed to communism than a fascist. So many times throughout the Cold War, we found that Nazis and, and Soviet communists were pitted against each other, and those alliances were used to the advantage of various organizations. So nobody hates the idea of Soviet communism spreading through Germany more than Klaus Barbie. So as the agents are pivoting to face this threat, they decide that the recriminations for past war crimes and past activities during World War II have to just kind of take a back seat at this point because they're facing a new developing threat. The old threat is done. These organizations have been effectively suppressed already. The Nazi holdout organizations are not really a significant threat anymore after two years of work in post-war Germany, but the Soviet threat is very real and it's only growing and getting worse. So the decision is made to recruit Barbie as a source. And he began reporting right away on his former SS associates, along with the Soviet and the British and the French intelligence operations in Germany. This guy, he just has access to everything and he starts reporting on everything, which is exactly what the CIC was looking for. Barbie initially worked as an assistant to Kurt Merck, who had already had his own source network spread out through the area. So the two of them, because they're very, very good at what they do, they developed this network up to about 50 agents in total spread through the U.S. and the French zones within just a few months. That's an enormous subsource network for sure. Barbie's new network is developing some very, very good intelligence reporting on the other SS officers who are still hiding out on population movements inside of Germany as people you know, are obviously still moving around. In, in the war-torn region as everything is being rebuilt. And he's also reporting on the activities of French military intelligence, as well as Soviet and communist activities in the region. What's even better for the CIC is that most of these 50 subsources were providing info in exchange for food, in exchange for ration cards, and for cigarettes, which were really hard to come by at that time in Germany. So the CIC is not having to shell out a lot of operational funds to pay off these sources because they're paying them in food and ration cards and cigarettes, which are far more easy for the American army to come by than anybody else. However, after, despite the fact that he's very useful to the CIC, to this region four office, Barbie still has to pay for his past crimes. At this point, the CIC still only knows that he was a Gestapo officer who had been part of a post-war Nazi organization which they broke with Operation Selection Board. They were still not aware of Barbie's actions in Lyon during the war. 
eventually CIC headquarters decides that even though he's been working for them as a source, he still needs to be arrested and interrogated, regardless of his value to the organization as an asset. His handlers within the Region 4 office, they argue against it because they say, look, you know, we're getting a lot of good out of Barbie. We don't need to take him out of the game right now for whatever he may have done before he came to us. But CIC headquarters overrules them and Barbie is arrested on December 1st, 1947 by the CIC. He'd already been working for about eight months at that point as a source for them. But he's taken to an interrogation facility and he's there in detention for the next six months being questioned about his role in this post-war organization that was mostly broken up at this point. However, oddly enough, he's not actually interrogated about his conduct during the war, only what happened from you know, mid-1945 on inside Germany. Well, finally, towards the end of the six month, Barbie is pressed for details about his time with the Gestapo in France, but he only gave kind of a partial account, a very limited account about what he did to counter efforts by the French resistance in Lyon. And I think this account is apparently it's taken at face value. He doesn't admit to any of his torture or execution or sending of people to concentration camps. He doesn't admit to any of this. And he's not really pushed. He's not really pressed on it. This His account is just kind of taken at face value. And I think personally that a lot of this probably came down to Barbie's ability to manipulate people, which has saved him many times over the course of his life. He'd already been at the detention facility for four or five months at this point. He's meeting with the same interrogators all the time. They've built rapport. They have an established relationship. And I think at that point that he had essentially convinced them that he was being open and honest about everything. So they were not expecting that this man sitting across the table from them was a torturer. They just thought he was a logistics guy and a human intelligence network guy for this post-war organization. So a bad guy for sure, but not, he was able to convince them that he was not the monster that he actually is. So Barbie is eventually released after about six months in this detention facility, and he goes back to work with the CIC in the U.S. zone in mid-1948. While he's gone, his network, his human intelligence network with Merck, had really deteriorated quite a bit because Merck was not able to handle it all by himself. The CIC did not really trust Merck's leadership anymore, and so they decided to break up this network into a much smaller piece. It ended up being about 15 out of the original 50 agents were maintained. But there was also another problem that they had to address regarding Barbie's continued employment. There was uh, a major concern within the CIC leadership already that if they didn't put Barbie back to work, that he might wind up just offering his services up to the British or the French in the neighboring zones. And this could potentially result in a major embarrassment for the army, which they had every intention of avoiding because Barbie knows everything that the Army CIC is up to. He's been working with them for quite some time, and he's done a lot of the work for them, as a matter of fact. And he's obviously willing to essentially sell out to the highest bidder. He'll, he'll work with whoever is in charge at that time in order to stay alive. So they're very concerned that he might start to tell the British and the French, like, hey, the Americans, they've been spying on you as well. They've not just been keeping tabs on Germans and Nazis and Soviet communists. They're keeping tabs on, your, on you as well. You're, then you're their best ally. So, of course, they wanted to avoid this. So the solution was simply keep Barbie on the books, keep him in a house, keep him fed, keep him happy. 
Six months after Barbie is brought back into the fold with the CIC, 1948 is ending, 1949 is beginning, and the French government start to kind of sniff around Barbie's continued residence in the U.S. zone. They're conducting their own investigations. They're having trials about what went on in the war, and they start to get some indications that this guy, who they know as the Butcher of Lyon, survived the war and that he might be somewhere in the U.S. zone, the U.S.-occupied zone in southern Germany. At this point, the French do not know that he's a recruited asset of the CIC. They only know that he's probably in that American zone, and so they go to the U.S. Army and they ask for some help in locating Barbie and turning him over to the French government so that they can put him on trial. So the French government, they make this official request to the U.S. Army's European command that Barbie be made available as a witness for a trial. There's a trial going on in France, a very high-profile trial for Rene Hardy. Hardy was a very, very senior member of the French resistance during the war, and he was suspected of collaborating with Barbie. They suspected that Barbie tortured Hardy. Uh, Hardy broke. Hardy started working for Barbie. And Hardy started to name names and gave up other members of the French resistance who were captured by the German army and executed or tortured themselves. And this is the point where things really start to take a turn. Barbie's handlers in the CIC are very reluctant to cooperate with the French government on this request to turn him over. They're not motivated by a desire to conceal Barbie's activities during the war. They're not motivated to shield him from the consequences of his own actions, especially because they don't actually know everything that he's done at this point because he's never revealed it and they've never really pressed him or had any reason to press him about what he did during the war. Instead, they just have this overarching concern that if French authorities are able to sit down across the table from Barbie and question him or interrogate him, the conversation might not just stay with what Barbie did during the war and his own interactions with Rene Hardy, which are eight years in the past almost at this point, they think these questions might start to go to what Barbie is up to right now. And they absolutely do not want the French to know that he is a recruited source for U.S. Army intelligence. His whole network had been collecting information on French activities in the French sector and French intelligence operations, and they definitely do not want Barbie trying to make a deal with the French or give it up under duress or anything like that. So they're very, very hesitant to allow the French to come into the American zone and question Barbie. So they make this decision that Barbie is not going to be transported to France to participate in this trial, but the French government can send some people to the U.S. zone and they will be allowed to question Barbie, but not take him with them when they leave, while Barbie remains under U.S. Army control. The CIC, previously they had been responsible for finding and extraditing Nazis to other areas to stand trial, like to the Ukraine or to Austria or to France, but that responsibility officially ended in 1947, and there was a totally different official diplomatic channel for requesting extradition now, which did not involve the CIC. So they cannot be compelled legally to turn him over because it's not their job to turn anyone over. Not only that, they're not actually admitting at this point that he's even an asset of theirs. They just say, yeah, we'll try and locate him in the American zone if we can find him. So during several different interrogation sessions, Barbie is questioned by the French about his knowledge of Rene Hardy, apparently to the satisfaction of the French authorities. 
Bar, uh, Hardy's trial continued in Paris without Barbie having to travel there and, and testify and without his personal testimony. It was just like some background information that they included for the trial. Unfortunately for the CIC, though, it looks like someone within the French government who was aware that Barbie had been located leaked that information to former members of the French resistance who, of course, really, really had a big axe to grind with him and really wanted to find Barbie any way that they could. So flashing forward a little bit to May 14th, 1949, the CIC's problems with Barbie became much worse, much graver. That day, a Paris newspaper ran a story demanding the extradition of Barbie from Germany to face trial for his crimes against the French population during the war. This article in the French paper, it described Barbie's torture of resistance fighters for the very first time publicly. So a few days later, CIC headquarters, they find out about this article and they immediately order that Barbie be dropped as a source while they try to figure out what happened because these war crimes, these atrocities are news to them as well. And at this point, they've been working with Barbie for a couple of years. Barbie's source handlers at that Region 4 office, they agree to drop him as they've been ordered, but they write back a memorandum rebutting the accusations in this French article, and they state that they have seen Barbie at work interrogating subjects, interrogating suspected communists and Soviet agents on their behalf, and he was so highly skilled in extracting information just using conversation that they saw it as very unlikely that he would need to use physical force at all. Now, bear in mind, this, of course, was happening while Barbie was working for the U.S. Army, which was a vastly different organization than the German Army, than the Third Reich, than the Gestapo. So, of course, he knows he's going to have to operate under different rules. And he's a master at this. Like, he's very, very good at just, you know, kind of shedding his skin and uh, adapting to whatever situation he finds himself in. So Barbie knows that he can't get away with physical force with the CIC. So he's got to rely on his manipulation skills, which are also very, very good. This rebuttal that they sent, this memorandum, it also appears to be the very first time that it's an indication arises that Barbie has not just an informant anymore, but that now he's a de facto agent of the CIC. They've basically admitted that Barbie is turning and recruiting and even interrogating sources within the communist underground in Germany. He's doing all of this stuff that the CIC needs done a lot more than just reporting on things, he's actually taking action. So a, a critical line has really been crossed at this point. Barbie had become not just indispensable as an anti-communist agent for the CIC, but he had also become vital to their survival as an organization. If Barbie was let go at this point, he could easily trade his information to the French or the British, whether for money or for protection or for both. So despite their wartime alliance, the U.S. Army was unwilling to share the full extent of their intelligence activities in Germany with their partners. And Barbie knew almost everything there was to know about these intelligence activities at this point. So the CIC headquarters staff, they're, they're caught in a difficult position here. Their response to the French allegations was to have major repercussions in the years and the decades to come. It was possibly the right decision at the time and under the circumstances, but now we have 2020 hindsight and we can see that this decision that they made right then became a major stain on the reputation of the entire counterintelligence corps. 
the CIC essentially, they just decided to do nothing with this new information and nothing with these new demands from the French. They instead just passed the buck back to the U.S. State Department and to the Department of the Army. Neither of these organizations, State and Department of the Army, uh, they're both you know large, slow-moving bureaucracies. They don't have all of the information available to make any decisions. Neither of them actually know that Barbie is working for the CIC. They just know that he's probably somewhere at large in and around Marburg. A CIC headquarters also directed Barbie's handlers that he'd be dropped as a source, but that relations with him should be, quote unquote, maintained as in the past. Their apparent intent, it seems, was that Barbie should not become aware that he had suddenly become a pawn in this game between the French and the American governments, because if he learned that, he might take measures to protect himself, such as go to ground, he might change his identity, he might disappear with his family, he might go offer himself up to the British, he might offer himself to the Soviets. I mean, there was he could do anything, and he was capable of anything. So I think it was sensible to keep Barbie unaware that he was becoming the center of an international crisis because Barbie had clearly proven himself to be an incredibly cunning and capable man, one who could survive and even thrive in the worst of circumstances. He didn't have any loyalty or moral compunctions that would keep him tied to his American source handlers if he realized that he and his family were in danger. He could build a human intelligence network from nothing. He could manipulate any situation to his gain. And he was willing to take enormous risks if the situation called for it. So this is the worst guy that you want to lose control of if you have control of him already. So this need to keep him unaware of his precarious circumstances meant continuing to meet with him as normal and continuing to provide him a salary and housing for his family. At this point, it would be very, very difficult for an outside observer to view this as anything other than the U.S. Army hiding and protecting a Nazi war criminal. They know he's wanted in France. They continue to allow him to live in a house. They give him a salary. They meet with him regularly, and they don't turn him over. It looks real bad because it is bad. For the next six months, this status quo is maintained. It looks like both the CIC headquarters and the regional field office practiced what amounted to a don't ask, don't tell policy about Barbie. There was no intelligence reports being generated from the meetings that they held with him, and headquarters did not ask for any information about him at all. They just kind of let the issue die down and hope that it went away. But Barbie's handlers did continue to meet with him, and they paid him on a regular basis so he wouldn't flee. But then in January of 1950, a French liaison officer approaches the CIC and he requests that Barbie be sent to Paris to testify in person this time in the trial against Rene Hardy, which is still ongoing. Barbie had submitted this deposition the year before and it had been useful, but now they actually want to put him on the stand and they want to um, have the jury hear about Barbie's interactions with Hardy. The liaison officer, this French liaison officer, gave the CIC his personal guarantee that Barbie would be returned to the U.S. zone at the conclusion of his testimony because he couldn't officially be extradited. And CIC initially agreed to these conditions, but just a few days before Barbie was scheduled to travel to Paris, the liaison officer came back and notified CIC that he would not be able to keep his promise after all, and Barbie might actually be arrested once he arrived in Paris for the trial. So therefore, the CIC decided that they were not going to make him available after all because they were unwilling to lose control of him. So as the months are dragging on with this diplomatic 
communications going back and forth, these first emotionally charged news reports in the French media about Barbie, they're kind of starting to lose their momentum. And the French government has not made like a serious concerted effort to see him extradited. And the American government is certainly not offering him up either. So things are just kind of slowly returning to a, a simmer, so to speak. This standard compartmentalization of classified information, which is practiced by the CIC, it meant that not only did the other regional field offices in Germany not know that Region 4 was running Klaus Barbie as a source, but it also meant that all of the other American bureaucratic organizations in Germany, like the Department of State, the U.S. High Commission for Germany, the Department of the Army, none of them knew that either. They still all thought that, you know, hopefully CIC can find this guy and hopefully they can turn him over, but they keep saying, no, they can't find him. Almost everyone who knew of the French request for Barbie's extradition, they just thought that he was laying low in an area that was under U.S. Army control. Barbie's name, eventually it gets added to a list of suspects wanted for murder by the German police, but nothing else was really done to proactively locate him. He's, he's wanted for these murders that occurred in France during the war, not for anything he had done in Germany afterwards. So all of these French and German and American bureaucratic organizations, they don't really know anything about him. And the CIC keeps kind of dodging the question and not giving up information about what's happening and things just kind of carry on. Well, finally, the whole situation comes to a head on April 28th, 1950. This is about three years after Barbie started working for the CIC at this point. Back in Paris at the trial of Rene Hardy, the trial is still dragging on. And Barbie's testimony from over a year before that he gave to the interviewers while he stayed inside Germany, this testimony is finally read aloud to the court during the proceedings. Well, Rene Hardy has his own defense attorney who immediately objects to the use of testimony from Barbie, and he describes him as a man who, quote unquote, took pleasure in torturing French patriots. So once that objection from the defense attorney is entered into the record, it causes an enormous stir. It soon became clear to the French government and to the French people who were following the trial that Barbie's statements, his testimony from over a year before, had been provided only because the army, the U.S. Army, made him available to the French, which means that the U.S. Army must know where he is or must be able to find him again, they're, that they're not letting on as much as they know about Barbie. So the French press picks up the story once again. It's reinvigorated. It's very emotional. And the French government starts to ask the U.S. Army's European command for a statement on Barbie. So now there's some very, very high-level people in the U.S. Army who are connecting the dots between the CIC and Barbie, and they want to know more. Finally, at this critical moment, just after April 28, 1950, a decision has to be made by CIC headquarters about what to do with the Barbie question. It's too high profile to ignore anymore. It can't be delayed. Well, for better or for worse, these officers at the CIC headquarters decided that Barbie should not and would not be given over to the French. Instead, they would communicate back through official channels that although Barbie had worked for them in the past, yes, he was no longer a CIC asset and his current status was unknown. It's still, to this day, not entirely clear why they didn't just want to get rid of him. He's a ticking time bomb, obviously. But once again, most likely, it's probably because Barbie knew so much about their operations that he could really destroy everything that they were working on, that they had worked on, and that they potentially would be working on in the future. 
if he was no longer inside U.S. Army control. So they didn't realize it at the time. This was probably a, this was a short-sighted decision for sure. But the consequences of not turning Barbie over to the French government for justice, that's a decision that would spin out consequences for the next 30 plus years. For the next six weeks after this request is denied, after they say that they don't know where Barbie is, there's confusion among all of these different organizations that are now involved. The French Department of Justice, the State Department, the French Embassy in Germany, just everybody is involved and nobody really knows anything because it's all been compartmentalized up to this point. So through the middle of June of 1950, there's all these official messages flying back and forth between all of these different French and American and military organizations and nobody really knows what to do. The High Commission of Germany is a military governing body that was overseeing Germany for the first few years after the war, and they're having to deal with the French government now, and the French government's getting upset. They're sending some very tense messages back and forth, but the High Commission keeps saying, look, we don't know. We don't know where Barbie is. No one can locate him. He doesn't work for us, and they're wrong, but they don't know that they're wrong because they're just repeating what the CIC has been passing up the chain of command through European command to the High Commission. Only a very, very few select members of the CIC actually know the full story, and they're not sharing it with anybody. It's basically CIC headquarters and the agents who've been running Barbie these past couple of years. They're the only people that really know everything, and they're not talking. But the French government, at this point, they're not taking no for an answer. They're not going to let the situation die down because they now have this clear evidence that Barbie had been under U.S. control at some point, and he was certainly still in the U.S.-controlled portion of Germany. However, through all of these angry letters that are going back and forth, all of these diplomatic cables, there's a very interesting subtext to the communication which is occurring because the French government never actually submits a formal extradition request in line with the High Commission's stated requirements. So the High Commission of Germany, they established these extradition requirements, extradition request requirements, in 1946. They've been on the books for four years now, and this is what you have to do if you're a foreign government and you want somebody from the U.S. zone to be extradited. Well, the French keep demanding that he be extradited, but they don't actually submit the appropriate paperwork to do so. So there are several diplomats, U.S. government diplomats, who were involved in this situation that kind of speculated as to why the French government might not actually submit a real extradition request. So they thought that because Barbie had this reign of terror back nearly 10 years ago at this point in Lyon, and like I said, he had turned a number of the French resistance members in the area. They had capitulated and they started collaborating with him. They started naming names. They started assisting the Gestapo in their mission. So it's known that René Hardé was one of them, and he's already been brought to trial. But there were probably a number of other former resistance members who had not been identified as collaborators and were now in high positions in the French government throughout the country. So it's really thought that perhaps there were elements within the French government that did not actually want Barbie brought to trial in France. They wanted to appear to want him, but they didn't actually want him because they were worried about what he might say. If he gets up on the stand and he makes a full accounting of who worked with whom during the war, this is, this is really something. If this is really the case, this is absolute dynamite because it just shows that time and time again, 
the knowledge that Barbie had in his head saved him from the consequences of his past activities. Everyone on all sides needed him alive and compliant and happy because if he's backed into a corner, he has the potential to bring down multiple government organizations in two different countries, in Germany and in France, and obviously elements of the U.S. military in Germany. So the best possible outcome for many, many, many of the people involved with Barbie is that Barbie never actually turn up at all. There's a lot of people that have a lot to lose if he's ever actually put on trial for anything, and if he ever really opens up about everything that he knows. So in June, on June 16th, 1950, officers from the European Command and CIC headquarters met with a representative from the High Commission of Germany, and they stated at this meeting that Barbie's employment had been discontinued the previous year, and no one had seen or heard from him since the end of April. That's April of 1950. This is the first time so far that a, an undeniably false statement was given from one major organization to another since the beginning of the Barbie debacle just a few months earlier. At this point, the people who actually know where Barbie is are straight up lying into the faces of other people who are looking for him. They're not deflecting. They're not just remaining silent. They're not acting confused. They're saying, we don't have him, when in fact they did have him. On the balance, it kind of looks like they just decided, this is the, the UCOM and the CIC people, they decided that the diplomatic fallout of not producing Barbie was less consequential for them than the fallout of everything Barbie might say once he was facing a prison sentence or even a death sentence in France. There was a similar line of thought that had already been raised at the High Commission when the Director of Intelligence at the High Commission of Germany stated in a memorandum that, quote-unquote, the policy question is presented of whether U.S.-French relations would be more damaged by delivery of Barbie, assuming we could find him, than by non-delivery, unquote. So this was something that was on everyone's mind by then. Everyone knew that Barbie had a lot of information about a lot of people that he might be willing to give up in exchange for freedom. Over the next several months, again, all the way through January of 1951, these messages keep going back and back and forth between all these organizations, but nobody gives up Barbie. On at least one more occasion in September of 1950, the CIC, they once again denied in writing that they still had control of Barbie or that they even knew of his whereabouts. It's still a little bit surprising that they doubled down on this false statement because it would probably have been easier for them to just agree that Barbie's extradition was both necessary and appropriate. In hindsight, we can now say that there might have actually been a way for the CIC to avoid covering up or lying about their own activities while still preventing Barbie from being taken by the French. And this is because, like I said earlier, the CIC was not mandated to actually perform the extradition because that role had been taken away from them years earlier. Due to all of these layers of bureaucratic red tape involved in extradition, the CIC probably would not have even been contacted by the actual extradition authority when the time came to locate and detain Barbie. They could have just continued to hide him and continued to pay him and keep him satisfied without actually lying to anyone about the situation. They could have just said, yeah, um, if you guys want to extradite him, go ahead. Good luck finding him. And then kind of remove themselves from the situation since it was not their responsibility. And no one had been able to find him in the past few years. And it was unlikely that they'd be able to find him again, especially if he's living in a CIC safe house. 
All the while, Barbie's continuing to work for his handlers at the CIC. He's continuing to interrogate people. He's continuing to turn foreign agents against their old Soviet handlers. So while this futile search for Barbie is continuing, the CIC detachment in Germany learned of an operation being conducted by one of their sister units in Austria, the 430th CIC detachment. Normally, these units were not in frequent contact with each other because their responsibilities and areas of operation were firmly divided. But the 430th had developed a mechanism for smuggling Soviet defectors and other valuable informants out of Austria, and in fact, all the way out of Europe. This mechanism was a human trafficking network, which they called a rat line. It was run by Father Krunoslav Dragonovich, a Croatian priest who taught at a Catholic seminary in Rome called the College of St. Jerome. Dragonovich was already operating the rat line himself to assist other Croatian nationalists in escaping from the newly reunited Yugoslavia, which was now under the rule of Joseph Tito, who was backed by the Soviet Union. Tito had fought a guerrilla war against the Croatians during World War II, and he was now cracking down on the surviving members of the former Croatian government. So Dragonovic was most definitely a fascist, and he was also a war criminal as well. With these rat lines that he's created, he's assisting Croatians who had brutalized and murdered hundreds of thousands of Serbs and tens of thousands of Jews during the war. He's helping these people escape Europe. Dragonovic was able to do this because he had developed contacts in Italy who could procure new passports from the International Red Cross and get entry visas for various countries in Latin America. But the agents from the 430th CIC in Austria could obviously see the value of a pre-existing clandestine pipeline to get new papers and um, allow for low-profile travel out of Europe uh, when it was necessary, because they might have some very sensitive sources that they needed to get out of the hot seat, so to speak. In fact, the 430th was even able to enhance Dragonovich's capabilities because they leveraged the placement and access of a U.S. citizen who was the chief of the eligibility office of the International Refugee Organization in Rome. This was an organization that provided documentation and transportation aid for war refugees who didn't have anywhere else to turn. The personnel the CIC most wanted to smuggle out of Europe wouldn't meet the normal legal definition of refugees. And of course, they also wouldn't want to identify them by their real names in the first place since they're getting helping them escape. So for the use of Dragonovich's services, the CIC began paying between $1,000 and $1,400 per person. This is an enormous sum of money in post-war Europe, and it really highlights the value of this rat line to the CIC. It's expensive because it's worth it. So once the CIC agents in the 970th in Germany learn about the 430th system over in Austria, they devised a procedure for making use of the rat line themselves. First, they're going to get some false documents made from the combined travel board of the High Commission for Germany, and they're going to take their informants to Austria, where the informant would be escorted to Genoa, Italy, by an agent assigned to the 430th detachment. This is something they work out between themselves. Once in Genoa, the informant is going to be lodged in a hotel until the day of their departure on a passenger ship for South America. On the day the ship sets sail, they are walked to the ship, and as they're boarding, they receive $50 in cash from the CIC agent who's escorting them, and they get a conclusive verbal understanding that their relationship with the CIC has come to an end, 
and that there would be no more future support nor contact of any type. CIC did consider other alternative methods for ridding themselves of Barbie. These included providing him with another alias and sending him and his family to one of the refugee camps in Germany, where they would eventually be processed out of the camp and allowed to kind of build a new life under this new alias. Or they also considered just cutting ties with him completely, kicking him out of the safe house, kicking the family out of the safe house, and just allowing him to make his way through life as best as he was able on his wits. And he was very capable of that kind of thing, but they decided not to just kind of go cold turkey with him because they still were concerned about Barbie's ability to damage the organization, however he might want to in the future. So in the end, they decide to use this rat line. Once this final decision is made, things start to move really quickly. Barbie and his family are provided with new identities as the Altman family. And the combined travel board, once they have these new identities, they found no reason to provide, not to provide exit documents for the Altman family because there is no derogatory record for Klaus Altman. A pair of CIC agents take the family all the way to Salzburg, Austria by train, and then from there on to Genoa, Italy. And in Genoa, the family was met by Father Dragonovich, who assisted them in applying for and receiving the travel permit issued by the International Red Cross as well as a transit visa for passage through Buenos Aires, Argentina, and finally an entry visa for Bolivia, which is going to become their new home in South America. So on March 23, 1951, Klaus Altman and his wife and children board the Italian passenger ship Corrientes for the two-week voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. Barbie would not come back to Europe for more than 30 years at that point. So Barbie makes it to Bolivia. This probably won't come as a surprise to you, but even with a new name and a new life on a new continent, Barbie fell back on the very same skill set which had served him so well before. He was soon connected with high-ranking members of the Bolivian military and government. He became involved in international arms trading, and he's been accused of providing training on the use of torture and interrogation methods to Bolivian forces. And it's never been verified, but it certainly seems like the kind of thing he would do. So I'm, I'm pretty certain that Barbie was teaching the Bolivian military how to torture and interrogate su subjects as necessary. And now at this point, no one in the U.S. military or government is keeping tabs on him any longer. They've all moved on to other things and just closed the chapter on Barbie. However, 15 years later, in 1966, the Army did briefly consider reactivating Barbie as a potential source. Events developing in South America led a brand new generation of Army intelligence personnel to review whether there were any persons of interest in the region which might still be of use. Uh, Barbie's name came up, comes up at that time because one of the former CIC agents from post-war Germany was still with the Army, and he recalled Barbie had moved to Bolivia 15 years earlier and might still be willing to talk. However, in the end, they decided that the potential repercussions for reactivating Barbie outweighed any benefit that he might provide, so the matter was dropped. So nobody actually recontacted him again once he made it to South America. But six years later, in 1972, Barbie's new identity as Altman was publicly outed by a married French couple who were war crimes investigators named Serge and Beatty Klartzfeld. They were able to track down Barbie in La Paz, Bolivia, photograph him walking down the street, and then immediately held a press conference to announce their discovery. The French government presses Bolivia right away to extradite Barbie to stand trial in France, but the request was denied because there was no extradition treaty between France and Bolivia at that time. 
It wasn't until another 11 years later, in 1983, that Barbie is finally extradited. And that was only because a new Bolivian president named Hernan Zuazo was elected, and he had no connection to Barbie. He didn't care about Barbie at all. So he went ahead and granted the extradition request right after he was elected president. So Barbie is extradited to France. He is put in jail awaiting trial until 1987 when he was finally found guilty of 41 separate crimes committed during World War II and sentenced to life in prison. But by then, 36 years had passed since he left Europe for South America. He's now an old man at the end of his life. And Barbie died of cancer just four years later in 1991 while he was serving his prison sentence in Lyon, the very site of his original atrocities almost 50 years earlier. So at the time of Barbie's extradition from Bolivia to France in 1983, the U.S. government as a whole and the U.S. Army specifically were widely condemned for their part in using and protecting and hiding and finally evacuating Barbie to South America. He was an unrepentant war criminal who devoted his life to the use of force and manipulation to gain and maintain power. There really can't be any doubt whatsoever that no matter how useful he was to the army in post-war Germany, he was very much a villain who deserved every single bit of the life sentence he received and much more than that. In March 1983, the Attorney General of the United States, William French Smith, ordered an investigation by the Department of Justice into the circumstances surrounding Barbie's interactions with the CIC and other branches of the U.S. government from 1945 up until the present. Long investigation was completed where every surviving person involved in the case was interviewed. All available documents were examined and investigators traveled to Germany, Italy, and Bolivia to examine available information there. The result was a 241-page long report published in August of 1983, which provided a complete timeline of the Barbie case along with the intentions, motivations, and results derived by the CIC agents. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, a, a close look at all of the circumstances surrounding his control by the CIC from 1947 until 1951 clearly tells a very complex tale, one which we have to frame within the moral and ethical gray zones of intelligence operations between competing world powers. There's several points we need to consider when we judge the agents and officers of the counterintelligence corps for their actions in this case, in my opinion. First, everyone involved was acting in the best interests of the current security and intelligence situation found in Germany at that time, as well as the developing landscape of the new Cold War. These agents in occupied Germany were truly at ground zero of a new conflict with new rules, which we now know would dominate world events for more than 40 years to come. Secondly, no one who came in contact with Barbie ever attempted to downplay or ignore his actions during World War II as those crimes slowly came to light over the years. They simply made the strategic decision that maintaining a capability to meet the threats that they were facing at that time and the threats that they would face in the immediate future overshadowed the need to reckon with the past. It was a decision born of need rather than emotion. If Klaus Barbie was made to pay for what he did during the war, as he deserved then and there, it would negate his value in what everyone correctly saw as the coming war with the Soviet Union. We now know that the Cold War never went hot, but 
Barbie's value to the intelligence picture of covert operations in Germany is, is totally undeniable. He was probably the best asset they had in country for the five-year period that he was working with them. Furthermore, complaints by the United Kingdom and France about the CIC's use of Nazi war criminals were quite frankly indefensible because both nations took advantage of this very same group of people for their own goals in the 1940s. Nazi collaborators found high positions in the French government. Nazi party members and German government officials were employed and used throughout the French and British sectors of post-war Germany right from the start. So complaints by either of those countries about the CIC's use of Barbie and other Nazis as sources amounted to blatant hypocrisy. No question. Finally, no one within the CIC was acting in any sort of personal interest by using or hiding Barbie at any point. No one benefited financially or personally from his employment. There was no corruption found at any level associated with Barbie during the attorney general's investigation. Uh, Simply put, agents and officers within the CIC were faced with an incredibly difficult mission in a rapidly changing world, and they made what they considered to be the best possible choice when faced with those circumstances after careful deliberation and coordination. So in short, it's hard to find fault in the use of Barbie for the two and a half years from 1947 up until April 1950, when the French press first reported his war crimes in in Lyon. He was reliable. He was effective. He was loyal. He was available. He was everything that the CIC needed at that time and place. However, beginning in May 1950, the CIC's leadership actions can absolutely and justifiably be criticized when they decided to hide Barbie rather than turn him over to face justice in France. At that point, he was his usefulness to the CIC was lost, and they didn't. They probably felt like they owed him a little bit of loyalty, but they were wrong because of everything that he had done. It was time that they turned him over to face justice for what he had done, because he was no longer able to provide any assistance to their security picture in Cold War Germany because he was too high profile at that time. But even then, no one in the CIC was attempting to personally escape the consequences of their actions or personally benefit from the situation. They weighed the benefits of using Barbie to uncover and counter Soviet influence in the U.S. sector versus the loss of that benefit so as to hold him accountable for his barbarity during the war. In the minds of the CIC leadership at that time, for better or worse, the impending Soviet threat outweighed the calls for recompense and punishment. In the end, Barbie mostly escaped retribution for his awful crimes. Spending the final four years of his long life in prison doesn't even begin to compare to the pain and suffering that he inflicted on the men and women and children of Lyon. Uh, It also can't be said that he found some sort of salvation or new purpose in his service to the counterintelligence corps. He simply relied on his skills to serve a new master and survive to see another sunrise. Once in Bolivia, he became involved in the use of torture, interrogation, arms trafficking, and possibly even drug trafficking as well, which shows his complete lack of morals, really. And unfortunately, it also showed the value of his skill set to governments worldwide. With the benefit of hindsight now, we can say that Barbie should have been turned over to the French no later than May of 1950, not simply to protect the U.S. Army from the fallout of its post-war decisions, but to ensure that this monster 
faced the reckoning that he rightly deserved. If you're interested in learning more about Klaus Barbie's time working for the Counterintelligence Corps, I encourage you to read the Department of Justice's report titled Klaus Barbie and the United States Government, a report to the Attorney General of the United States. It can be found in many places online and it's very readable. It's not at all a typically dry legal document like you might expect. It goes into much greater depth about his work in Germany than what I've covered here in this episode. So if you're interested in more Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.